O come, let us adore him, Jesus Christ, the Lord. That is our prayer this morning. As we come in worship, in singing, in fellowship, in listening and hearing from the word of God, we come with hearts that are ready to worship the king. The king of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Emmanuel. We come to worship you today. We ask, O oh Lord, that your presence would be known through the expression of worship from your word and from the music that we sing, that it would be a reflection of our heart. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be active through the word, this living word of God, that it would bear its way in hearts today and that we would be responsive to this word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Of course, we come this morning to celebrate Christmas Eve. Tomorrow is that big day. I'm sure all of you kids are really looking forward to. As we come to this this morning, we turn our attention to Jesus Christ. Of course, the typical Christmas messages that we'll hear remind us of who Jesus is, remind us of that day when Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem. We perhaps recall the the little baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid there in a manger. Perhaps we remember the, the shepherds that were watching their fields by night and the angel of the Lord that comes and kind of breaks through the darkness and the glory of God shines around him and he says, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then, of course, he was accompanied by, it says, a host of angels, a multitude of angels praising God. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came as the king of peace. He came to bring peace to earth, goodwill to men. But as we look around this world, as we come to, to, to see the, the heightened sense of violence in our country and are aware of the conflicts that are taking place around the world, we, we wonder what kind of peace Jesus came to bring. Of course, the angels anticipated through this prophetic witness, this, this coming king of peace, we find from 1 from Peter that angels desired to look into these things. They were, they were there with the front row seats, as it were, anticipating the Lord who had come, this climax of this king who had come to earth, his arrival that was evident through the scriptures anticipated by those for whom he came prominently revealed to us through the Psalms. As we've been looking through the Messianic Psalms, we've been reminded of this promise of this future Messiah, this Christ-like figure, this better than David and better than Moses and better than Abraham kind of figure who, who would bring all of these things and make them present for us. Throughout the past several weeks, we've been looking at the Psalms and, and seeking to look forward to 
this Christ figure, this Messiah? What would Messiah bring? What would his ministry be characterized by? We saw from Psalm 21 that that he would bring joy. We find that in Psalm 21, verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence that God would bring joy to his son and that joy from his son would spill out to all who are part in fellowship with his son. In Psalm 22, we saw this promise of hope from Psalm 22, verses four and five. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Then in verse nine, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. This word for trust is the Hebrew word for hope. It's the word that trust and hope and confidence, this confident expectation of this future hope that will come through this messianic figure. Last week, we looked at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. We saw that the Lord, through his shepherding care, will bring love to his people from verse 6. It says, surely goodness and mercy, which is our word, hesed, which is covenant love, surely your your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this morning we look to the king of peace. We see Jesus, the Lord, who is front and center from start to finish in this psalm as the king who, who will bring peace to his people. Peace on earth, goodwill to men will come through this king. That baby of whom it was spoken by Gabriel, Mary, this king in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and and bring a, bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Psalm 24, verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This king of glory pictured for us in Psalm 24 is the one and the same king of glory that came as a baby in a manger so many years ago. Probably no more urgent time in history than this time for peace. No more urgent time for peace than than now. Just a quick look over the internet this morning. There are over 110 conflicts that are taking place around the world, pretty much globally as we we look at the various countries and the various regions around the world. There are 45 armed conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa, places like Cyprus and Egypt and Israel and Libya and Morocco and Palestine and Syria, Turkey, Yemen, Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's more than 35 armed conflicts in Africa, in Burkina Faso, in Cameroon, Central Africa, in Congo, Ethiopia, Mali, Mozambique, Nigeria, Senegal, Somalia, and Sudan, just to name a few. There are more than 21 armed conflicts in Asia, India, and Myanmar, in the Philippines, threats of violence from North Korea, 
There are seven armed conflicts in Europe alone. Russia and Ukraine, of course. Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, where people are being killed. Conflicts are happening. Peace is anticipated and longed for. The need for peace could not be greater than now. Open with me, if you would, to Psalm 24. We're going to find the king of peace coming front and center in the pages of Scripture from Psalm 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 458. We see this king of glory who takes his place in the celebration that ensues from verses 7 to 10. Who is this king of glory is repeated twice for us. What can we expect of his reign? How extensive will this peace be experienced? David begins with first things first as we look in the first couple of verses. We see, first of all, the preeminence of the king. The preeminence of the king. If we're ever to understand how this king will reign and how this peace will be enjoyed, we must first understand the quality and the character of this king himself. Where is the dominion of his kingdom? Who are the people who are subject to him? We find in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We find first and foremost, his dominion is total. He is preeminent. His dominion is total. Notice the opening phrase, the earth is the Lord's. Literally in the Hebrew, Yahweh stands at the beginning of this phrase, and the earth follows. It literally is, to the Lord, the earth. The Lord stands as preeminent in the sentence, and the Lord stands preeminent over creation. Everything remaining in this sentence and everything remaining in this psalm is subject to him, to his preeminence, to his supremacy. The earth is defined by causation to him. It belongs to him. It serves his purpose. It is owing to him under his authority, dependent upon him in every way, and finds its purpose in relationship to him. The Lord is over all. He is supreme. He is preeminent. And all that is contained within the world, the fullness thereof, and the world and all who dwell therein, it says, is subject to the Lord's rule. He reigns as king over them, whether they acknowledge it or not. They are accountable to him. They will ultimately worship him. They will bow before his throne. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. But before we can ever appreciate the baby in the manger, we must come to terms with who this baby really is. He is King over all. We refer to this as sovereignty. You have a, a brief definition of sovereignty on your notes. James Montgomery Boyce helps us understand the significance of this quality of God. It says, we can never exaggerate the importance of God's sovereignty. For God is the greatest of all realities, indeed the very ground of reality. And sovereignty is the most important thing that can be said about him. The other attributes of God 
are also important, but if in our minds we ignore or distort or deny God's sovereignty, meaning his absolute determination and rule of God over his works and creatures, then God will no longer be God. The psalmist David wants to commend and and call to attention the sovereignty of God over all. That is what David intends to confirm. God is supreme. He is sovereign. Absolute authority. Ultimate king of the universe. He bows to no one. He answers to no one. He is accountable to no one. He is self-existent and preeminent. He is Lord over the world and everything in it. And so when this king takes his throne, he will exercise his power over all dominion, over all the earth. He's not a localized king. Not just a king over states or a king over regions. Not a king over countries or even continents. He is Lord over all. Complete dominion. So that the earth in all its fullness will experience the power of God's sovereignty and be subject to his wrath or enjoy his peace. His dominion is total. But we see in verse 2, his dominion is also eternal. Notice, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David continues to strengthen his argument. He wants to call attention to, to the power and enduring quality of his sovereignty. By drawing attention to the enduring quality of the world, God is now calling attention, or David is calling attention to the quality of God that is eternal, enduring, and forever. He founded it upon his seas. He established it upon the waters, he says. When God creates the world, he founds it upon the seas, which is this word to lay a foundation, a base for construction. It's the same word that's used of God in Psalm 104, verse 5, which says, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. He also established it upon the rivers. This is the word to establish or to make firm. It's only used four times in the scripture in this tense and draws attention to the permanence of God's work. Psalm 48, verse 8 says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of our Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. If that which God has made endures forever, then the Lord himself will also endure forever. He is the Lord, high and lifted up, the Lord who is above all. He is preeminent. He is king over all. His dominion is total. His dominion is eternal. And David begins this psalm by orienting our perspective. It is the Lord of Psalm 24 that lays as a baby in the manger. Worship him.
born to die. He was born to bring peace. We think about the preeminence of God in the first couple of verses, and it leaves us with the question, similar to the question that David will pose next. If the Lord is high and exalted, if the Lord is over all and transcendent, if the Lord is beyond and above the range of human experience, then is it possible for humanity to ever access and enjoy the presence of God? What right do we have as those who are small, those who are created, those who are under the preeminence and sovereignty of God, what right do we have to even think that we could approach the majesty and the glory of the Almighty God? David will ask this question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And we see in verse 2, in verse 1, or excuse me, verse uh, 3 and verse 4, we see the privilege of access to the king. While the king is preeminent, while the king is high, while the king is supreme over all, there is access to God. There is approachability. There is the amazing wonder of privilege to fellowship with God in some way. We find in these verses the conditions of worship. Not only the privilege of access to the king, but the, the conditions of this worship and the worshiper. The immediate answer in light of the revelation of God's preeminence is no one should be able to access God. No one can meet him at his level. No one can measure up and fellowship in his circles. No one can compare to his greatness. No one can even come close on their best day to his splendor. But that's not what the psalmist says. Praise the Lord, that's not what the psalmist says. Unexpectedly, God comes near. God establishes in Jerusalem a place where his presence would reside in the temple. He would not be distant. He would not be removed. He would not be inaccessible. He would be approachable. David continues by laying out a set of conditions of worship that he draws attention to. Three times a year, Jewish men were to make an important pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booze, as we find from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. It says as much, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booze. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. But before they could come, they could not come flippantly. Coming to Jerusalem, ascending that hill was to be done seriously reverently, thoughtfully. The worshiper, the pilgrims approaching this mountain of the Lord, not only ascending in terms of elevation, which is all by God's providence in that Jerusalem was one of the highest cities in Israel at 2,500 feet in elevation. And so especially if you were coming from Jericho, which was 900 feet below elevation, you were traversing this hill upwards to Jerusalem but not only an ascent in terms of geography, but a, an ascent in terms of spirituality, coming to the hill of the Lord, coming to stand in his holy presence. 
and the conditions involved include the totality of life. We see that there in our verse. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. These conditions which involve the totality of life, his actions, his motives, his worship, his words, or his, you might say, his hands, his heart, his soul, his mouth. You might also describe it as what he does, what he desires, who he devotes himself to, and how dependable he is. It involves a totality of his entire being. These clean hands, which is referred to here, refer to actions and conduct, that he's innocent, he's free of blame, he's not guilty. Hands were the instruments of action. They were the expression of doing in a, an individual. We find that as far as back, back all the way going all the way back to Genesis chapter four, verse 11, speaking of Cain, where God comes and confronts Cain, and now you are cursed from the ground, God says, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And then of, speaking of Joseph, his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. And then referring to the Lord in Psalm 138, verse eight, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And so to describe the purity of hands, the, the cleanness of hands, or, or the cleanness of our actions, the, the deeds that we would perform are pure and spotless and appropriate as measuring up to the standard that God has set but a pure heart now goes much deeper, not just the external expressions of conformity, but the inward heart, the motives of heart, pure and pertaining to moral condition. Used only seven times in the Old Testament, it speaks of the affection of an individual. Psalm 73 verse one says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This goes to the deepest levels of human existence. Not just innocent in action, but innocent in pure, in desire. You want the right things. Not just refraining from evil, but desiring what is pure and holy and right. So the qualifications for worship are elaborated here in moral terms, not just external conformity. He moves on, not lifting up your soul to an idol or to that which is worthless, speaking of his devotion. This is begun by this permanent prohibition does not lift up his soul. There is no time in which you will bow down to that which is false. To lift up or to cause, to move or to raise, your heart is not lifted up in devotion to that which is false, to that which is improper, to that which is not God. Psalm 31 verse six, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, the psalmist says, but I trust in the Lord. That is the expression of his heart. Conformity and devotion and worship to God himself and God alone. In Psalm 25, verse one, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. This one does also not swear deceitfully. In his mouth, in his words, and the promises that he makes, they're dependable, 
This is the word to swear an oath, to make a sworn promise. It speaks of that which is not deceptive, not dishonest, the the individual who will not make promises that he then intends to break. Psalm 34, verse 14 says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. These are the ones to which God will honor. These are the ones who can approach the throne of God, can stand in his holy presence. Those who come before the Lord must come as those whose actions and motives and devotion and words and commitments and speech and life reflect a heart of faith. Those who love the Lord, their God, with their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, the totality of their life. We see echoes going all the way back to Deuteronomy and this expression of those who truly are full of faith, those who worship God with the totality of life. They will honor God in terms of these conditions But as they come before the Lord in worship, they will also enjoy the blessings of God. They will enjoy the blessings of worship. We find that in verses five and six. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. This word for blessing speaks of excellence of a person, an oath or a vow, and interestingly, a treaty of peace. The blessing of God that comes by extension from God to his people and invites them to enjoy peace with God. The first time this word is used in the scripture is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, as you would expect where God is making distinct promises to Abraham, and he extends to Abraham this treaty, this covenant of peace, where he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's our word. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as Abraham is experiencing the the favor of God, this treaty and covenant of peace, Abraham will then be an extension of that peace to others. You will be a blessing, Abraham. The peace that has come to you from me will be extended to the families of the earth as you extend this blessing and covenant others. It will be worked through you, Abraham. This covenant of peace will extend to the nations. And we find righteousness, blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This word for righteousness is the word justice or rightness. The state of doing what is required according to a standard. Translated in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it was understood as mercy, not as righteousness, but as mercy. God extending his care, his charity to them. The New English translation translates it this way. Such godly people are rewarded by the Lord and vindicated by the God who delivers them. This is the word for vindication, the word for justice. Those who live rightly will experience the justice of God, the rightness that is extended from God to them. They will enjoy the benefits of being in fellowship with God, God's favor, God's preservation. 
God's mercy. These people will experience God's righteousness. In Isaiah 56, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. God extends his favor, his kindness, his peace, as it were, his mercy to his people, to the ones who represent those who are righteous in following after God's standard. The first time this word is used, this righteousness is used of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. It says of Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord extends righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. The God of his salvation extends salvation and deliverance to his people. It goes on, such is the generation who seek him, who seek his face, the face of the God of Jacob. Again, we see seeking that's happening as an expression of those who are true worshipers of God. Seek that is given to us twice in these verses. The first is a present, active, continuous sense. It is real, it is active, it is living in your life. It expresses itself from day to day. The second word for seeking is also in a continuous form, but it expresses the intensity or the urgency or the passion in which the, the seeking is happening. It becomes the all-consuming passion of a life, the seeking heart, seeking after the face of God, seeking his face. Well, what is the face of God and what, does, what is enjoyed by God's face? God's face in the Old Testament was always emblematic of God's favor. It was a symbol of peace with God. As we find from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, this is the, the prayer of Aaron for the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, those who enjoy the Lord's presence will also participate in the Lord's peace. Peace has come through the King of glory. Would you stand together? Let's join in singing.
David has been stoking the fires of anticipation through the first half of the psalm. And he brings to us a series of questions that, that, that emulate the song that was just sung. The king of glory is coming. Who is this king of glory? David asks. Notice with me in Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is this king of glory. Selah. We come to the end of this psalm and we recognize that that, that David, in, in building our attention to the preeminence of God, allowing us to understand the accessibility and the privilege of coming close to God there in the temple. And now... The worshiper will experience the actual presence in the physical king who is coming into his holy city, Zion. When will this peace finally come? How will this peace be enjoyed? And how will the earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, obtain and experience this peace? In verses 7 to 10, we find this provision of peace that comes through the king of glory. But before we really understand and can comprehend peace, we must know peace as it is described and explained for us in the scripture. Miriam Webster defines peace as a state of tranquility, freedom from civil disturbance, freedom from disquieting or oppressive uh, thoughts or emotions, harmony in personal relation, a state of mutual concord. We might call it somebody who is untroubled, somebody who is experiencing a measure of tranquility or freedom from conflict. But the biblical definition of peace helps to set the record straight, helps us understand what true peace really means. Peace is prosperity, intact state of favorable circumstances, satisfaction, Yahweh's peace, completeness, a state of total, uh, totality of collection. We might call it wholeness. It's the word for shalom. It's the word where, where God is bringing back all the things that were broken and he's putting them back into order. He's assembling them in the right places. He's allowing us to enjoy what was broken and fractured and now there is wholeness and completeness in our life. And of course, that shalom, that peace is only possible in relation to God. The God who is king over all the world and the fullness thereof. That relationship, that fellowship that was severed because of sin, Christ brings fullness and completeness and true shalom, true peace, true completeness and wholeness as we're restored back to fellowship with God. We find the king of peace that is coming to Zion here in our verses. The gates of this citadel of Zion to which every city is addressed to expand themselves in a manner that is worthy of the king. 
Here, the gates are personified. They're given human characteristics. Gates, lift up your heads. These are the gates of Jerusalem, the ancient doors of the city of Zion. This anticipation of a promise fulfilled, not just for a people, but specifically for a city. And unlike the other Psalms that we have studied, there is no hint of David as being a partial fulfillment to these words that we find here in this psalm. David is emphatic. This king of glory is not himself. This king of glory is the Lord. He is strong and mighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is this king of glory. There is no comparison. God will take his place on the throne of David. He will come as one who has conquered in battle, mighty in battle, this king, this Lord. He is the one who will reign once and for all over all the earth. His kingdom will be characterized by peace for those who seek him. We find this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and I would commend Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 to 23, the similarities and the, the word usage throughout Zechariah chapter 8 is, is almost uh, too hard to explain. But we don't have time for, to move through that passage. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 simply says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore because the king of peace has come and has established his throne in Jerusalem and all the earth the totality of the world and all the fullness thereof will enjoy this peace that God has brought through his son of peace. Luke chapter 19, verse 38. As Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the crowds will say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was the anticipation. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that passion week, it was a bit premature. He would first be marked by suffering because there was a peace that was better and more important than national peace. More important than peace with men was peace with God that happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace, of course, would come at great cost. It's Romans chapter five, verse one, says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace would come through the Lord, the King of peace, but first, a peace with God. As Ephesians chapter 2, 14 says, he himself is our peace who has made both one. Jesus is the peace of God. But how is this peace obtained? We find from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. For while we were still weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Those who believe in Jesus, the one who was truly perfect, the one who fulfilled the law to the end, has become our peace by dying for the ungodly. He died for the wicked, you and I. He died for those who had rebelled against him, which turns Psalm 24 on its head. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul is not lifted up to an idol or who swears deceitfully? We come to understand that these qualities are qualities we may never possess. These qualities only come from a life that is foreign to us, a life that comes from God himself because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus himself is the king of peace who met the standard, who made away these qualities which the Lord alone possesses. We are justified by his blood, that precious blood of Christ, this righteous king. So we look to the Lord in every way as the God of our salvation. And so through Christ, Psalm 24, verse 5, now takes a whole new meaning. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation is not just vindication, but is actually now imputed righteousness that the psalmist had no idea in writing this passage he was going to foretell. But of course, in the, in the providence of the Holy Spirit in writing these inspired words through David would help us understand the work which Christ would do in giving us his righteousness, in counting it to our account. The bankruptcy of ourselves will be filled up with the fullness of Christ's perfections. Not just vindication, not simply justice or pity, but true righteousness from God himself credited to our account. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The perfections and righteousness and purity of Christ poured and credited to our account. In 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you know this morning the king of peace? Have you put your faith in this king? Are you anticipating his coming? Are you enjoying the benefits of his righteousness? Are you seeking, as those in this psalm are seeking the face of God and looking to worship? As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and then out of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Have you believed in the king of glory who's coming.